Hi, hello, welcome to Leave a Message, my podcast with Janet. Hi. Hi, Janet. Hi. You look great, so we record these on Zoom, and so we're looking at each other while we're talking, because we don't really get to look at each other enough. I saw you all day today. Yeah, we actually went on an excursion today. We left the house together. Someone actually noted that it was a rare sighting to see us out of the house. In the wild. Your tattoo looks fantastic. It looks really good on Zoom, and it looks great with that shirt. And, you know, it just occurred to me, well, when you said it the other day, that you never have to wear a necklace because you have this permanent... I'm permanently jeweled. Decorative. Yeah. Yeah. It's gorgeous. And it means a lot to me that your son did it. It does. Uh, we it, have our own sweet. we have our own little relationship, me and your son. Oh I know. We oh I know. We kinda always have, but it continues. It continues our relationship. Yeah, it really does. And you know, he asked me the other day if you were excited about the back piece and if I saw the picture and it seems like he's really excited about yeah, it. We're both very charged up about it. It is really cool. It, I'm excited to see it. Yeah, I admire people that have the pain tolerance to get tattoos. It's something that's baffling to me. Yeah. You know, you never know your your like limits as compared to someone else's limits. But mm-hmm. I'm I have to say I think I must have a high pain threshold because I don't there seems to be like that like tattooing and other examples where it I find tattooing like pesky but I don't find Mm -hmm. it especially painful Hmm. I mean sometimes it sucks like getting tattooed on your throat box like that I did not (laughs) enjoy it but at most it like makes me like think like ouch ouch that hurts ouch but I don't but that's it yeah that sounds excruciatingly terrible to me where did we leave off in the Steve the saga of Steve Verwolf and Janet I feel like we had just started talking about his him yeah his getting out and kind of disappearing Mm -hmm. yeah so i don't know if we mentioned that you guys moved out of seattle you moved to we We, um i mean much like today it's like pretty hard to afford a house in seattle and it that was the circumstances for us then which it was 1999 so quite a number of years ago housing even then was like pretty unaffordable by a single family well, single income family. And you could always just get more over there, even when it was still reasonably, yeah, yeah even when it was still kind of affordable here, yeah. you could still always yeah. get more over there farther away. I mean, we didn't have a whole bunch. Like, he had his salary, and I wasn't, I mean, I hadn't really, I definitely didn't have any kind of, like, career established, right? Like, I was working at Seattle Central Community College as, like, a tutor for hmm. English as a second language student, and... I was, you know, just chipping away at school credits. I didn't really have much of an idea what I was going to do with them. And my kids are going to the daycare up there. And so I, I didn't have a whole bunch of, like, income potential at that point. But he did. I mean, he was 
he was in the carpenters union before he locked up and he got out and he went right back to work as a carpenter and and he made you know he's a union guy so he got paid well and so like on his salary and me because we had two kids it was it was almost like more affordable like better on our budget if I didn't work because we would have had to pay childcare that would have been more than what I was going to bring in anyway. So had you guys already moved away from the city when you got married or did you get married? We and then got move no, away? we got married and bought a house within a week of each other. Oof. Right? So he got out, I want to say sounds like what Dallas just yeah, did. Yeah. Yeah. He got out, I want to say um early spring of 99 and we got married in august of 99 and we bought a house we closed like september 10th of 99 so we did it all like pretty quickly after he got out but we ended up moving to bremer east bremerton unincorporated kitsap county and we bought a house on an acre for i think i think we got it for like one hundred thirty-one thousand dollars in 1999 which I mean, and it was a it was a messed up house. It looked like it had been a like kind of an abandoned porn set or something. Like it had a giant hot tub <laughs> and a giant deck and a swimming pool in Bremerton. Like a swimming pool doesn't make a whole lot of sense in Pacific Northwest. Like very rare that a house would have a swimming pool, but this one had a swimming pool. It had like apple trees and cherry trees and a wet bar i mean it was real like but it looked like it hadn't nobody had loved the house or nobody had taken care of the house in a while the the kitchen kind of swinger yeah kind of swinger yeah you know when like sliding glass doors and like that attach to a deck that goes around the whole house and a hot tub is a sunken hot tub is and i mean it just had a weird vibe mm-hmm uh, so we got that house and we tore it all apart and put it all back together. I don't. We never really finished it. It's still unfinished. Alice drove by it the other day and she said that they still haven't finished it. And we sold it in two thousand twelve, maybe. So yeah, we we bought that house. Our kids went to the street to the school right down the street. They were able to walk to school pretty much. And we went to work on the house, and Steve commuted to Seattle every day from that house, which was a long commute. Mm. And I think it was, like, part of what – there was a whole bunch of factors that sort of led to him eventually passing away in 2008. Of course, like, a whole bunch of things happened that I feel like were causal. And I think that commute was hard – on him every day, five days a week, sometimes six days a week, he would be in his car for 90 minutes twice a day, right? So makes a eight hour day, an 11 hour day. And, and, you know, my experience with alcoholism, right? I, cause I have it too, of uh, that, that much time by yourself in your own head is not a good idea. Well, not only that, but really being isolated from your friend group, yeah. from 12-step connection, yeah, yeah. community, yeah. and... Yeah. I mean, ethnic food, for God's sakes. Like, I don't know, in Bre- <laughs> yeah. Bremerton in 1999, like, I remember we... W- whatever, Bremerton is a nice place. Very many people that I love live there. But I remember when 
we bought a house out there and I had always gone to Bremerton through either Kingston or Bainbridge. I'd never taken the ferry to Bremerton because it was like twice as long. It's an hour ferry ride instead of a half hour. And so I would, but when I remember when we had our moving van full of furniture and we we got on the ferry to go to Bremerton and we had our moving van, it was all full of stuff and this was it. We were moving into the house we just bought and I was we were pulling into Bremerton and I saw what it looked like from the water and I started crying. I was like, oh no, I've made a big mm. mistake. I've been a I'm I I never felt at home there. I never felt like I mean I loved my family. I still love my kids. I loved our the house that we had together. I loved the life that we built there for the time that we lived there, but I hated living there. I hated living away from the city. I hated living away from, I don't know, like the sounds of trains and cars mm-hmm. and garbage trucks. And I'm a, I was culture. I mean, you're an artist. So yeah. being there and just having, having yeah. to inspire yourself or yeah. not yeah. being able to introduce your kids culturally to the stuff that you grew up with. And you li- have li- had lived in the city your whole I've life. Never, yeah. I've lived, point. I'm born and raised Seattle, right? Born mm-hmm. at university hospital, you know, got, was hospitalized at university hospital with abscesses and, you know, like everything I, all my experiences were from the city, from the city and whatever. Seattle was not a big city back then, but, but it was, I just didn't ever want to leave it. I still love Seattle. People talk shit about Seattle every day. Lots of people hate it. People bag on the weather. I get it. The weather does suck, but I love the city. And so I hated living somewhere else. I was homesick. I was super homesick, but but that was a confusing feeling because I I was home. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like yeah. So and what year was that? What year was it? You guys moved over there? Ninety nine. Oh wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he commuted to work every day. A uh, long time in his head by himself. Long time thinking every day. That's interesting because I got I got sober and. 1998. Well, not really. The last day of 1998. So let's call it 99. So right when I was kind of resurfacing, you were gone. Yeah. That's why we yeah, didn't see each other. Yeah, this is one of the lapses in our for a long time. Yeah, Yeah, we didn't see each other. I mean, but I remember like I was going to Mason's birthday parties. Like we have that picture, that photograph on mm -hmm. the fridge of Lucas and Dallas at Mason's birthday party. And he has to be like four. Mm hmm. Yeah, I think I was either there that day for part of the day or I was there when you took the picture. I remember seeing you at that hmm. event, but I just wasn't in my in my right mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I I mean Mason's dad threw the party, so I think I yeah, just Yeah, it was at Paul's house. came and left yeah. like a guest. I wasn't really hosting. Yeah. The dark years, the darkness. Yeah. So you guys all moved to Bremerton in 99. Okay. So you were over there for Till, uh, I moved, nine years. Yeah, I moved back in. I mean, I think I moved back to Seattle in 2009. Mm. Right? I was there for like a year after he died. Because mm-hmm. I kept the business going. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. 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 Right. Well, you tried. So what was the progression? What do you feel like the progression was of his pattern of starting to use and being gone? Like how many times, you know, yeah. well, how often Dallas, would he disappear? Dallas listened to the last episode and she 
reminded me that the first time he relapsed, I was in Denver because I was working for a publishing company and we were, the home office was located in Denver. And so a couple times a year, I would go to Denver for like all hands meetings or whatever. And I was there, I was out of town and my friends had picked up my the kids and brought them to their house after school or something. And then he was supposed to come home from work and pick them up and bring them home. And they called me in Denver. I'm in meetings and he's not there. He mm -hmm. doesn't pick them up. And, you know, that would be terrifying for any kid. I think they were really terrified because he, right, they grew up with him gone until they were five and six years old or something. And so, like, I think their experience of dads is they come and go, right? Their dad came and went. And when he went, he was gone for a long time. And they kind of knew, like, what... I mean, I, I, I'll i reiterate it, but what's what was always true about him is that the people who he loved had no doubt that he loved them. Right. It, he uh, was just a real loud person of, of like he just felt things really strongly. And he was, you know, he could be like anyone else, like have good moods and bad moods. And, you know, we we laugh about him a lot of like when he would get the same cold that had already passed around the family, like everybody's had it. Right. Like everyone gets a cold, you get uh headache you get a sore throat but he would get like the worst headache and the worst sore throat and he would probably end up at urgent care because he felt so bad you know just everything was just kind of more extreme mm -hmm. for him extra. very Aries very Aries right <clears throat> everything is just more extra for him so you'd never doubt we never doubted that he loved us but he, he had a real bad affliction and so he was supposed to pick them up and he didn't show up and they were, you know, and I wasn't in town either. So they they stayed the night with my friends. I think my mom picked them up the next day or my sister maybe. And then I came home as soon as I could after that. But I mean, that was kind of the pattern is that, which is a real shitty pattern because what ends up happening is it when it happens randomly, right? Like, you have more anxiety about if it's going to happen today, right? Is he coming home? And so when he doesn't answer a phone call or when he's a little bit late, I mean, I remember one. So this started happening. This would every five or six months or a year, he would relapse and then he would be gone for three or four or five days. And then he would come back and he would be, very sad and embarrassed and did he always disappear after work on a friday or yeah, payday yeah. or yeah basically after work on a friday so every friday were you like oh shit is, is he coming home i mean not every friday because because 90 percent of the time he came home mm -hmm. right 98 percent of the time he came home and you and you wouldn't like, I never f could figure out, I never like, got a sense of, like, what it, what it was. And I don't think it was anything from this world, right? right? That, like, 
this is the day. Right. But when but when it's like I mean it's basic behavioral science, right? Like variable ratio reinforcement really is the strongest way to in, to change behavior. So it's the it's the slot machine, right? That it appears to be random. And so what happens is maybe this time, maybe this time, maybe this time. Oh, didn't happen this time. Maybe this time, right? And it gets really po- powerful, except it was this type of anxiety. Like, maybe he's not coming home. Maybe it's this week. Maybe it's this week. Maybe, oh, he's not answering. Maybe it's starting all over. And so I think all of me and the ki- the kids and I all got into a real pattern of, you know, I think probably diagnostically the three of us would classify as a as an anxiety disorder right we probably all could get that diagnosis if we wanted to because we i mean we just it was just a real tense way to grow up right of like one of these days he's not coming home and then it would happen right and then he wouldn't come home and there would be you know lots of fallout like his mom would get involved my parents would get involved our finances would be hit right we'd have to figure out whether or not he had to go to treatment or and so well, right i mean if he's hitting it that hard for 3 days he's going to have to recuperate he's not coming home sunday night and going to work on monday no and it, and the consequences would pile up but i mean like so many alcoholics that we know, right? He has like positive genius for rebuilding his life, mm-hmm. right? Like can tear it all down in three days, but can rebuild the relationships, can like win back the confidences, can like earn the money back pretty quickly, right? Like he was a, I think a lot of people we know are have that ability to like build up their life over and over and over, which, you know, that's a, can be turned into a superpower, you know? Well, he had a very soft landing every time, you know? He had a home and a wife and a family that cared about him and loved him, and he could just roll in and just be like, oh, fucked up again, but I'm going to just sleep in my bed tonight. You know, it's not like he was facing, you know, homelessness or getting... Or whatever, I mean... No, but, I mean, my experience of all of those things is those don't change the behavior. No, of course not. Of course not. Yeah. I mean, I think probably if things had been different, I mean, who who knows yeah. how to even talk about, like, if things had been different. Right. But I think about that sometimes of, like, should I have made it more unwelcoming to come home? Or should I have been, like, more strict about... Boundaries. Boundaries and, like, you better go to treatment and you better stay in treatment and you better go to AA and you better... Mm-hmm. But, I, I mean, I'm just not an Al-Anon. I just am not... Like, I I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I don't even know if I can say that. But I didn't set... I didn't... He always could come home. Sure. He always could come home. Yeah. I think that no one can fault you for that. I, don't, I think that's understandable it's it's kindness it's compassion it's love it's you know this is your home and your family i mean yeah and he never used at home not that i know of (laughs) not that i know of i never saw it yeah i didn't i didn't really see it i mean it would have been real weird yeah because it's like he he very much had two different lives right he had like his his outdoors life and he had his indoors life and uh, you know <laughs> extracurricular was, and yeah his, yeah. yeah his sort of like alternate Clark Kent and Superman right know? yeah 
torture. I mean, to me, it just sounds like it a, sounds like torture, torture. a tortured. Existence. I mean, and with like the the wisdom that I have now, and the like understanding of SUD that I have now, and and the like knowing what happened eventually to him, like I I would do it differently today. Mm-hmm. I would do it differently today, and and also, you know, I have I have a enough. PTSD that I don't think I could I could stick around one percent as long as I that I ended up sticking around with him right like I I wouldn't have done any of that relationship over again well and it's and circumstances are different now you don't have two small kids you don't yeah. have a mortgage you're not running yeah. a business you know his own yeah. business so when did he when did he start his own business then probably 2006 mm. 2005 or something so it was going a few years before yeah. he yeah, and it was probably 2006, and it was doing well. Like he was a successful. I mean, it was the beginning of so the you know the real estate boom bust was 2008, mm-hmm. right? The year he died, like everything, everything about that company was probably you know was in the toilet in 2008. So who knows if the business would have lived through that? But it was doing well. Mm-hmm. It was it was doing well. We. Had contracts. We had employees. We were, hmm. you know, installing ceilings and acoustical wall, stretch wall, right? Mm-hmm. Like we were doing jobs. Hmm. So it was going pretty well. Did it, was his disappearing, did it accelerate? Was it happening more often towards the end? Yeah. yeah. It yeah. Just, esca- just escalated. I mean, it used to, I, I, I want to say it happened like maybe once Every two years, then once a year, then once every six months, and once every three months, probably. Hmm. And so, so one of the l- last times, probably six months before he died, he went on a bender, a run, and he got, he scared himself. Something happened where he scared himself. He, he, um, so a couple of things, like when I'm talking about all the things that are kind of, factors in his death is he started um mm. treatment for hepatitis c that's right which was it which was interferon at that time which mm-hmm. was like not benign right we know a lot of people who got really messed up by that really toxic yeah really toxic it's chemotherapy basically mm-hmm. and like if you can survive it you might cure your hepatitis and right lots of people we know got really sick and he got really sick except the doctor who prescribed it to him i later called him and and screamed at him but the doctor who prescribed it to him told him he asked if there were going to be any side effects any dramatic side effects steve did are Mm -hmm. there going to be any bad side effects and the doctor said well i mean only if you're kind of a pussy (gasps) Mm. and so steve had a lot of side effects but didn't want to talk to the doctor about them because he didn't want to be seen as a pussy. Mm-hmm. So he like didn't he get like sores in his mouth? Yeah, just his some, whole like mm. his whole mouth, throat, the whole digestive system blistered. Mm. So he, you know, he was in a lot of pain. And and here's what I'm just now recognizing is that this is what he told me, right? Like. Mm. The thing about SUD and addiction and obsession is, like, it will mutate the truth to make your use make sense. 
right? Like justifiable. Yeah. It'll justify why why I have to get loaded, mm-hmm. right? And so he sought relief from this pain that he was having from interferon, and so he started buying pain meds on the internet. Now, that makes a lot of sense when you hear him say it, because it probably made a lot of sense to him. But what it sounds to me now, just hearing me, you know, just hearing the story is that, well, yeah, because that's what we try to do is make it make sense. But the reasoning doesn't like the justification doesn't make sense in the light of what always happens. The consequences. Yeah. The consequences. Mm -hmm. So, but that's the story is he's, you know, he's getting a lot of pain from interferon. He would take the shots on Friday, interferon shots on Friday, and the whole weekend he would be in bed just sobbing. Because remember, he's the guy who feels everything intensely, right? The cold is more for him than it is for the other people who had it in the house. And, And this was just, he was just feeling it real bad. And so that was kind of a part of the story. And then he started... A job in Portland, which was weird. We didn't really have jobs outside of Seattle or outside of the city. But he took us like a church. It was a church in outside of Portland. And it was we were going to have to work two weekends. And so he went down with him and a couple co-workers and they started the job. And he didn't come home from that trip. And he, I mean, he came home, I think, like, thursday or something after being gone like he just ended up smoking crack in portland for a while and then he came home and then i went with him the next weekend i was like no way you're not we got to go finish that job but you're not going to go by yourself and so i went with him Hmm. and it was it was hell right we went down early in the morning he was like in a bad mood the whole time the job was like pretty hard and like we weren't going to make any money and so there was that pressure on it because we were trying to get it done fast and he he was in a terrible mood and sweating like I remember we were like working and he was just pouring sweat and I wasn't used to him being so like detached from me right like I wasn't used to Because most of the time where he was in the obsession, like he knew he was going to get loaded, he was not with me. Right. Right. He would be at work or he would be commuting home from work and he would be in that mindset. So I hadn't really spent a whole bunch of time with him when he was in like, and he was snappy at me and he was, we were fighting because he had just come home from a relapse and the job was a sinker and um, we were in Portland. I was worried about the kids. And, you know, I just think of, like, the stress and freaking terror that those kids live through with that kind of stuff sometimes of just makes me really sad. But so we were out of town and we made it back. We got home probably Sunday night or something. And, I mean, I could look up to see exactly what the dates were, but he he left again when we got home. Mm. So that was... What did he say? He's going to the store. He's going to work. No, he's going to work. Right? He leaves the next morning. He's going to work. And then he doesn't come home from work. So that's August 6th, I think, was the last day that I saw him. Oh, wow. And and he didn't die until, well, I think he died August 8th. (laughs) So we just kind of think it's another 
it's another like he's going to come home again. Another three right? days. This is the pattern. Yeah. This is the pattern. He's going to be gone. This time I'm thinking we're probably going to have to put him in treatment. Because there was less, just less and less time less in between. Time. Yeah. Like he needed a timeout. He needed to, yeah. he needed to, he needed to be locked away, kind of. Was he, when he was leaving and going and gone for days at a time, was he using opiates or was he mostly doing you know, crack? He used, or? You know, he's a, he's a crack, was a crack smoker. He would do opiates to come down, mm. like to like mm-hmm. be but able was, to make it home. But he wasn't strung out on opiates. He wasn't no, physically he never, dependent. I don't he think he ever addicted. was. Oh, I don't wow. think he ever was. Mm. I don't think, I mean, I think probably like by accident he had been strung out a few times, but that was never his cup of tea. Mm. So so this time he leaves and and I have his bank account and I can see his bank account online and I can see what ATMs he's hitting. And I could see... I mean, so grim. I could see that he was trying to make it home. Right? He would, like, hit this ATM, and then he would get on the 5, and he would drive south, and he would get, you know, to, like, Gig Harbor. And he would hit an ATM there, and he would go back to Tacoma. Oh, shit. And he would, you know, try again, and then he'd hit a hit, hit a ATM in Port Orchard and drive back to Tacoma. I could see that he was, like, trying to make it around the sound um and he just couldn't he just couldn't make it and so he we're expecting him to come home and he's not of course he's not answering his phone he's not answering his phone yeah no so we're expecting him to come home we have four dogs at this point right we have two rottweilers uh australian shepherd and a english bulldog the kids were all just like waiting in limbo for him to come home and I can't remember what time of day it was but I want to say it was like mid-afternoon I see a car pull up in our driveway and it says corner and so I kind of have an idea before I hit the door and and the door to our house was a glass door you could see right through it and the two people knock on the door and the dogs go at the door, right? They would always bark. They're friendly dogs, but they're always just saying hi to whoever's on the other side of the door. And I step out and the dogs are going crazy behind me and I see who it is. I see the badge on his chest and it says Kitsap County Corner. And I go back in the house because I'm going to bring the dogs and put them in the backyard. And I say in passing to the kids, they're like, who is it? And I said, I think it's about your dad. And they say, what happened? And I said, I don't think he's alive anymore. And I put the dogs on the back in the back porch and I shut the door and I, I go back out and I'm on the front porch with these guys. It's a man and a woman. I don't remember what the woman looks like at all, but I remember the man had like a mustache and and he was telling me that that it took it took us a couple of days to find you, which I didn't really understand, but that Steve Vera Wolf was found in room 404 of the La Quinta Inn in Tacoma, and he was a presumed overdose. They were doing an autopsy. And the woman just kept saying, like, I'm so sorry for your loss. I'm so sorry for your loss. And 
I remember like I like my hearing went weird, mm-hmm. right? I couldn't really hear. You know, this is what happens when you know, when you when you're experiencing like trauma, shock, this yeah. traumatic event, mm-hmm. right? Like I my I couldn't really hear like all the blood in my body was not in my like sensory organs. I couldn't really see very well. I remember I could just sort of focus on the guy's mustache and his face. I, you know, couldn't really, you know, just lost sense of sort of where I was and what I was doing, except I could hear an owl in the distance, like right over, like across the street on my right, there was an owl. And I remember hearing that. And I remember, you know, just remember bits and pieces. And, and I could remember that my kids were screaming on the other side of the door. Hmm. Was it common to hear an owl in your It was, I mean, it was pretty common. It was like the suburban rural woods, right? Yeah, yeah. It was not not uncommon. Right. But now whenever I hear one, man, it feels Mm. like someone just walked over my grave again, right? Mm -hmm. It's just like, woo, bone chilling. So we heard, you know, we got the news. We, uh, I mean, it's like two weeks solid of just sobbing so like my whole life is unattached right like i'm not i don't have any grounding i am just like and the kids were how old 14 and 15 right around there Mm. 13 14 14 15 yeah right around there 14 and 15 Mm -hmm. we call his friend we call his friend and he comes over Steve's friend, childhood friend, knew him from Laurelhurst, right? We had kind of reconnected with that family. And so he came over. We called his mom, and she came over. It's kind of before I realized that my parents weren't good in a crisis. So I think I probably called them. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember, like, I didn't have a big life then. Like, Steve was so much of my life that I didn't have a lot of f- friends. I had, like, two I didn't have a I didn't have a support community. Mm-hmm. I didn't have I mean I had a my sister lived close by. And my sister is who you want in your corner when you need to get shit done. Like mm-hmm. that she is just my sister. She jumps into action. She jumps into action and and I had you know and then I think we cri- we cried for weeks it felt like we cried for weeks. And then people just kind of stepped in. Like, I didn't have anything to do with planning his memorial. And his memorial was, I think, about two weeks or two months, rather, after Mm -hmm. his passing. But I didn't have anything to do with planning it. Like, people stepped in. And, you know, I was on Facebook at the time. So I think there was a, I think there was stuff that happened on Facebook about it. And I I mean, I think that's when we first got reconnected, I think, was... Yeah. Right around then. Was it Facebook or was it still MySpace? It might have been MySpace. Yeah. I mean, I remember, I feel like we, like our group of friends started, I feel like we came over to Bremerton before the memorial happened because Mm -hmm. I remember going to the memorial and it wasn't like the first time I had seen you in a long time. So I think we started coming over. Yeah. I mean, that's, to me, that's just like, that's what AA does. 
that's what probably all support communities, but my experiences with Alcoholics Anonymous, that's what people do is you just go, you just show up. Mm-hmm. You just show up for people, right? Of like, oh, somebody just had a nuclear bomb blow up in their life and we're going to bring them a lasagna to put in their fridge, mm-hmm. right? Like, we're just going to go there and sit with them. And, and I didn't ever feel like there were high expectations of that I had to you know, show up in a particularly put together way or, and I think, you know, while I was keeping the, I had to keep the business going and, and I kind of was trying to keep it together as best I could for that. I was already, I mean, pretty soon after he passed, I was, you know, messing around with prescriptions and not using them appropriately. And, but I kept it together for a while because I had to run that business. Because you had employees and you felt I had employees. Yeah. And, and I, like, we had borrowed money from people, you Mm -hmm. know, and I wanted to, to, you know, Steve always talked about how he wanted to have his name on a crane, right? And I wanted that, you know, after he passed for a long time, I kept, like, that that sort of became my, like, I was going to get that for him. I was Mm going to get his name, his name on a crane, I think that's a terrible thing that that people like I don't know maybe it works for someone but if I were sitting with a woman who had just lost her husband who was thinking about how she had to go on I would say you're you don't have to inherit his his dreams cuz that became a huge burden for me mm-hmm. that I, I remember had to somehow Well I remember us talking about that at a certain point when you were struggling with kind of when you came to the realization, like, I'm keeping his dream alive for some reason, but at what at what expense? What what am I obligated to continue right. to try to fulfill when it's kind of sink it's sinking me? Yeah. And I'm right. feeling like I can't I can't do it anyway. Do I stay on this, you know, right. treadmill trying to right. do his thing when he's not here? Right. I couldn't do it. I mean if I was sitting with me at that point, I would say close the business tomorrow. Yeah. Just, just close it. let it go, yeah. Just let it go. Well, I don't think it was that cut and dried at it the wasn't. time. And I didn't have, I mean, I didn't have anyone to give me advice. Nobody in my family had lived through anything like that. Nobody that I knew had lived through anything like that. People have a lot of, like, ideas about how some like this is the noble thing or whatever but nobody had any experience Mm -hmm. i didn't know what what i should do so i was really making it up as i went and and you know that maybe the most primary truth about me is i'm an alcoholic right and that same like delusion system that existed in him existed in me and you know it gets, I'm also Scorpio, so it all is very secretive, right? <laughs> it's all yeah. very secretive. Nobody knows what's going on. Right. Nobody knows. But also, as we know, just because, you know, cannonball blasted through your family, that person's gone. Everyone's grieving. Everyone's in shock. Everyone's trying to, whatever, get up every day and just be alive and deal with it. But also... The bills are coming in. Life goes yep. on. There's employees that need to feed their family. So yeah. your obligation to keep the business going was perfectly understandable at the time, you know, yeah. and to give it a valiant effort for it seemed like at the time was for the right reasons. You know, yeah. it wasn't 
some denial of reality. It was, I'm obligated to do this because, A, it's this is what I know how to do, and I have to feed, now I have to feed my family and feed and provide jobs for the other people that are employed. Yeah. So I don't think you could have pulled the plug on it any earlier than you did, you know? I mean... It would have been fine. It would have been fine if you would have. Of course, everyone yeah. would have understood. Yeah. But it just, it happened how it was supposed to happen. Yeah. I mean, that much is true. Yeah. It was a, that was a dark time, though. And so, yeah, I didn't get sober again until 2011. And so that, those three years mm-hmm. are the, the darkest years of my life. Hmm. Yeah. The darkest years. Like, it can never get as bad. It can never get as bad as it was 2008 to 2011. Was there a moment after he died and you're in the grieving process when you feel like it just clicked over into, like, I'm out. I'm not, I can't f- feel, I, I need relief. I, need, I can't feel these feelings. I'm checking out. I'm going to just start no, using I mean, and I, drinking. I don't think there was a moment. I don't think I've ever said that, mm. right? I don't think I've ever just said, like, fuck it. Mm. I it's almost more like sinister than that where I thought I'll do better I will this will be better for everyone if I just like well first of all no one will know mm. and I will be super powered right I will make me be able to handle the stress better I'll be able to be a better mom I'll be able to be a little bit you know more available It'll keep me on the planet, right? I don't think I, I've, I've never been a, like, grab the yoke from the pilot and crash it into the ground, right? I've never been that, I don't think I have that streak, right? Of just, like, we're just going to go balls to the wall right for the wall, right? Squirt, like, I'm, yeah. I've never been like that. I've, I've always thought, like, I, I have, like, an innate deficiency, like, I'm not enough, and I need chemicals to make me enough. Mm. And and when on those chemicals I perform better, I'm friendlier, I'm more... I have more patience. I have, I more, have patience. more energy. I, yeah. yeah, like, I have. I, that's how I... Which I think is almost worse, right? Because it's, like, it's more delusional. Mm. It's, more, it's more, like, that this is a good decision for everybody. I'm doing everyone a favor if I stay high, right? So, you know, I start, like, going down secret channels to find secret chemicals. And <laughs> and I'm an opiates person, man. That's just where I go. I'm uh, alcohol yeah. and opiates. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just in in that kind of pursuit, like, I I get hooked up with people who are also into that. You know, right? Like, and that, and it it becomes a a type of a relationship that's more like me and Beanie Baby than me and a person that I'm an actual partner with, Mm -hmm. right? We we become, we become like crime partners and not life partners. Mm -hmm. And so I move a crime partner into my house with the kids. Mm -hmm. My son, Lucas, goes to university at, 17 or so what year was what year was that that Lucas went to college 
I mean, it's got to be like 2009, 2008, 2009. Mm. It was shortly after Steve died. Mm -hmm. First of all, I can barely... So I get a bit of money from Steve's life insurance, and the house that we were living in was too depressing, right? The... We had built it with Steve, like every corner, every light switch, everything, every, you know, every bit of wiring, every bit of deck, every bit of plumbing we put in that house. So, like, there was just too many ghosts. It was too painful for us to live there. So, I'm going to, I move us to Bainbridge, which is a bit of a drive from from Bremerton, but it's closer to Seattle. So I move us to Bainbridge. The kids have way more friends on Bainbridge. I thought I was doing the right thing. So we leave the house in Bremerton. We move to Bainbridge. And the the person that I'm partnered with lives nearby. And we, you know, start selling basically stuff out of the old house. Mm. You know, selling all... Steve bought me a hot rod. We sell that. We had lots of motorcycles. We sell those. You know, just everything. Like my life literally becomes a fucking fire sale. Mm-hmm. I start just selling stuff. The I can't. I can't afford both houses. You know the the power's going off and on. I can't. Um, Were can't, you planning on selling the house at that time, or you just didn't have a plan? I didn't, didn't have a yeah. plan. Yeah. I didn't have a plan. You're like, I just got I knew I couldn't live there. And yeah. I mean, maybe I didn't have it, and maybe I just wasn't listening to it, but I didn't have anyone to help me with this. Right? I didn't have an advisor of just like, okay, you have gone through a trauma, and you are not going to be thinking straight. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to step in as like an executor or like a guardian, and I'm going to help you make decisions. Mm-hmm. And I bet, man, that's probably a service you could sell. There's a free idea for anyone who wants it. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> go ahead and create that service. I think you'll make some money because because I had no idea what was the right thing to do. And, you know, I I was not a businesswoman. I was not a estate planner. Yeah, I'm not an estate planner. I'm smart nowadays, but but that's only because I've been alive for 52 years, right? I, I think um, it was, I just didn't know what to do. Well, and also the natural, in the natural life plan or whatever, I guess, you would, when your spouse dies, you're old and your adult children mm-hmm. would step in and help you, you know, deal with all of the stuff. But when you're trying to keep yourself afloat, keep your kids afloat, figure out, you know, that's a lot. It's a lot. Just a lot of... It was a lot. A lot of responsibility, a lot of emotional, overwhelming situation. I think um, because of God's grace and because my kids are really resilient people and because I probably have some invisible privileges and visible privileges, I didn't fuck it up all the way. I didn't 100% fuck it up. But I came real close to fucking it up, right? <laughs> I came real close. Well, right, every you and the kids are all alive, thriving, healthy, good good relationship. Yeah. But I mean, I could have I could have died as well. Right. Yeah. Right. So me and we'll call him we'll call him what? We'll call him Beavis. 
butthead. Beavis. We'll call him Beavis. Beavis. <laughs> so me and Beavis, <laughs> I mean, it's just like fire sale. My life is a fire sale. We're selling literally everything out of the house. Mm-hmm. And it's all, you know, it's all going to drugs and drug debts and... And at that time, the kids are kind of doing their own thing. They're kind of they hanging out with their, their own thing, hanging out with their friends, and just being yeah. young people. Yeah, yeah I mean, and I think up to some terror, right? Because they were not, yeah. they were not parented. Like I was checked out. I was like, that must have been when Dallas and Mason were. I think together. I was sober when they started dating. Mm. I think I was already sober. No, this is when this like before. They started dating before you left the Bremerton house. No, I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think so. I yeah, think I was already, Mason I was used already to come, in Seattle. Mason used to come stay over there all the yeah, time. Yeah, but I don't. I think he was just visiting. I don't think they were doing anything together. I don't think. Mm. Maybe, oh, maybe okay. they were just like falling in love or something, but right. I don't think that they were gotcha. a couple okay. yet. Right, right. I think I was in Seattle by the t- when they started dating. Mm-hmm. Because remember, he spray-painted outside of our apartment that we moved into that was your apartment. Oh. Did I, did we, I think we have to bleep that. We have to yeah. bleep that out. Okay, anyway, yeah, Beavis and I just start tearing through our resources. And the thing that's true is, like, we don't like each other, right? Like, I have, I am, at this point, I am wrapped around the axle of like grief and loss and uh of course of course i am you know out of my mind so he's a person just to clarify who beavis is he's a person that we all knew from before someone who's been i had known him since i was a very young person yeah. and i'm assuming you knew him Long before. Oh that, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I, he and I uh, dated in the eighties, early, early nineties, like very early. We hung out together, so then we're hanging out together again, and it's terrible. And I have a lot of strong feelings that I think are about him, but they're not about him. Mm-hmm. Um, they're about how much I want to escape. The feelings that I have in this life and... And not be alone. And not, and not be, alone, be alone. And and be able to, like, check out. Because yeah. my life at the time was so painful and so overwhelming and so mismanaged that I want... I mean, I, I used to think that I, I wasn't... I couldn't get high enough. I couldn't get high enough. I wanted to be just be like heart and lungs, right? That's mm-hmm. it. I don't want. Yeah. I want to be just one thread connected to the planet, and and the thing is about getting you know about using drugs as an older person because I was forty three or forty four or so mm-hmm. at this time. Is that my infrastructure was so was just? I mean, I have. I couldn't get enough drugs in mm-hmm. to feel the way that I wanted to feel. And Did so, Beavis know Steve? Was Beavis friends with Steve? Yeah. Yeah, I remember um, Beavis threw the tire iron through Steve's truck. Like, they were, oh. they had been friends. Mm. They did jobs together. Um, mm-hmm. They, like, I don't know that they were tight friends, but they knew each other. Mm-hmm. 
And so I think I was with Beavis for a year or so in Kitsap County. And then I moved back to Seattle and I lived at my, I went to treatment. Mm -hmm. I went to Lakeside and then Mm -hmm. I moved back into, to Seattle into my friend's basement. Mm -hmm. And, and we were still kind of hanging out together probably six or eight months into me getting sober. Oh, wow. Did he ever attempt? Was he trying to he get did. sober? He did. He never mm. really, I mean, he never stopped. He never really stopped everything. Mm. He hasn't, I mean, he has no interest. He gave it a try. Probably he was like trying to transition me in, in and like, I think he probably really did attempt. And I mean, we had attachment to each other. Mm-hmm. I cared about him. I I still care about sure. him. Yeah, a friendship. As a, hu- as a human, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I want him to be okay. I want him to be happy. But we were like nitroglycerin, right? It, it was those that year, year and a half or two years, whatever it was, was like the darkest time in my life. And I wash up in AA. I know I went to treatment in... September or something of 2010. Hmm. And I didn't even get sober until December of 2011. So hmm. I was together. trying. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a year and a half, a year and two months or whatever. Mm. Like I was trying for a long time before I could get it. I was trying. I, I mean, I really wanted to be different. I really wanted it to be different. I remember coming to visit, me and Dallas coming to visit you. And yeah, treatment, I, think. I know. I hadn't smoked for 20 years. That's right. We brought you cigarettes. And I you brought like, me cigarettes. What? And I, w- yeah, I called out and I was like, Dow, can you bring me cigarettes? <laughs> and she was like, what? But God bless her, man. That girl is good. That that yep. girl is a true homie because she didn't give me any shit about it. Yeah. She was like, yeah, what kind? Yeah. Right? Because they when you go to treatment, they... At least this treatment center, you obviously can't do drugs and alcohol. You can't drink coffee and you can't have sugar. Mm. So what, but you can smoke. Mm-hmm. Everyone's smoking. Yeah. You can't do dip, but you can smoke. So, I mean, what are you going to do? Yeah. What are you going to do? You got to grab that last vice. You got to hold on. You got to grab if on. It, I mean, I'm, I was just trying to stay in the treatment center i just wanted to stay mm-hmm. i snuck a suboxone in too did you get did you get sick didn't you get come out of there really sick like bronchitis always like sick, sick. well first of all i snuck a suboxone in to to lakeside milam in mm-hmm. my in a makeup compact yeah i had like one eight milligram suboxone i made it last probably about 14 days just like nicking Sliver. at it nicking yeah. at it nicking at it Cause I, and the reason is, is because I really wanted to stay, mm-hmm. and I had a strong sus- suspicion. It's been true every other time I've tried to get sober. Basically, I don't stick around. I'll leave on day three, mm-hmm. and I really wanted to stay. And so I thought maybe you know, maybe if I sneak in a pill, I'll, I won't leave. I think Beavis actually brought me the pill after I was in there for two or three days. I think oh, wow. he, I, I asked him to, and he brought one in. And I think, you know, I I think that was a smart decision that I did that and because mm-hmm. I, I ended up staying. I didn't end up staying sober, but I ended up staying through that treatment. It, I mean, I, and also got walking pneumonia while I was there because mm-hmm. there is some, like, 
it's an like used to be a retirement home or some kind of like long assisted care facility or something. And there's some kind of extra virulent, super powered mega bug that lives there. And everyone who goes to Lakeside gets like Legionnaire's disease or some kind of like <laughs> freaking walking pneumonia. Yeah. But I had walking pneumonia when I came out. Yeah. I remember you being really sick. Yeah. Everyone was. Yeah. Hopefully they've gotten that straightened out. They've cleaned out their HVAC system. Well, or... maybe the masks. Maybe the masks. Oh yeah, down yeah, that's true. Yeah, <laughs> no one's getting sick anymore because right. Yeah. So that brings us to uh, 2011. When I, I mean, 12 28 2011 mm-hmm. is my sober day. Hmm. And what was what had happened on what had happened on what that happened was. Did something specific happen the day before that or that day or just was the day that you didn't drink that day and didn't drink moving forward after that day? Just, huh. Yep. It just, just I know. I mean, that's how I know, like, I mean, whatever. I don't know how factual this is, but this is what I believe is that nothing circumstantially was different on 12-27-2011 than 12-28, right? I had pancreatitis. I had, I was covered in abscesses. I had, I couldn't stop throwing up. I couldn't stop crying. I had bladder stones. I had like chronic UTI. And all those things were true on the 27th too. Hmm. You know, and I don't know what it is about 12-28-2011, except the only explanation to me is that God saved me. I don't know how I didn't drink on that day. Mm-hmm. I don't know how I didn't use on that day. I don't know how I got to keep that day, except that I do, you know, I had been doing the the things that we say in AA are the, like, sort of ma- magical algorithm, right, of, like, get a home group, get a sponsor, start reading the book with your sponsor, start taking steps, say a prayer at the beginning of a meeting, say a prayer at the end of a meeting. And I was mm-hmm. doing all that stuff. And and in a, on the day that God thought was the right day, I got to keep that date. It's like the, the obsession was removed on that day. Like, like doing all the stuff, like you said, you know, that we do in AA, we do the prayers and do all the stuff in AA and then the change happens. And to me, that's kind of like the moment. I don't know if it was sudden or if it happened over time. Gradually. I don't know which one. Yeah. I mean, I remember I was not like without like, boy, I'd get loaded today if I could. Right. That still would happen every once in a while, but I never, I don't know. I think some of it is I just got more, I just got excited about a different future. I mm-hmm. just got I felt like a mustard seed got planted of like maybe maybe I could have a different life and maybe my life could be salvageable and maybe I could earn the respect of my kids back and maybe I could become useful and dig myself out of this trouble. Wild. And this happened. Was Lucas coming back to visit from college? Would he come? Yeah, back? occasionally. He was pretty yeah. steady in Salem. Yeah, yeah. And he has just been in Oregon ever since. Yeah, 
It's Maybe wild to think. Now. I think right, he's, yeah. lived, he's lived there as long as we lived in Birmingham. Ten years. Yeah. Yeah, well, when we were just there this summer, passing through Portland and had dinner with Lucas, I really did think about, like, wow, once he left for college, he, never he has never lived in Washington again. It's well, and just, what would he come back to, right? Like, we moved from his from his childhood home. We didn't live in that city anymore. We lived in an apartment, like... I mean, I'm not saying it's because of me that he didn't move back, but we everything changed when he left. Like mm-hmm. there yeah. wasn't us. There wasn't the like he's had to make his home where he is, right? Because and there he built, wasn't really one. He built a life there mm-hmm. that is incredible. It's mm-hmm. look appears to be a great life. He's really yeah. fulfilled and happy. Yeah, and thriving. I mean, he walks. He's doing he stuff walks that around he with the yeah. He walks around with the confidence in Portland the way I walk around in Seattle. Like this mm-hmm. is I know every street in the city. Yeah, right. He walks around with that in Portland, which I think is you know, I think it's cool. He, that reminds me of me. It is cool, and it's cool that he is still so close. I mean, it's close mm-hmm. enough that it doesn't yeah, yeah. feel like the yeah. disconnection or so yeah. so far that he's unreachable or un seeable without a big effort and then huh that was it that was 2011 mm-hmm. the last couple days of 2011 yeah right i wouldn't have picked that date i'm mm-hmm. telling you right well mine is mine's 12:31, and everyone's well that makes like, more sense new year's eve well who would get sober on new year's eve everybody well, who would get sober on 12 28 in well, between no, christmas like, and new year's Exactly. Right. It seems like everybody makes a New Year's resolution on January 1st, but no one makes it on New Year's Eve. You're like, New Year, new me. I'm never drinking again. Yeah, but New Year's Eve, it's perfect reason to party. Although it's been fun to have my sober anniversary on that day because there's already another celebration happening, so it doesn't Mm -hmm. have to be... I can kind of... Just ride the celebration that's already happening and just kind of do my own my own yeah. thing. Wow. Well, that was, I mean, it is a sad story. Of course, it was a dark time. Of course, it was just very, you know, tumultuous and, and touch and go and hard for your family. And we, I think we talked about this last time, but there is such a message of recovery and healing and, and resilience and... Now, you know, like I talked about last time also, now you're that beacon. You're the person that other widows come to to talk about the stuff that you didn't have anyone to talk to about. I mean, how full circle, like, incredible is that? I I hope so. I hope. I mean, I will say that that the mustard seed that I was given on December 28th has grown into the biggest plant in the garden. You know, like I, I have recovered. I, I won't speak for them and say that I have a hundred percent earned the respect of my children back, but I think it's possible. And I, I hope to, I, you know, I have a career, I have a profession, I have an ability, I have abilities, I have, you know, a family in Alcoholics Anonymous. I have, people that I love very much and that know every bit of me, all of these stories and love me despite them. And not, not maybe not only love me despite them, but love me because of them. Mm -hmm. And so all of that, like thing that I hoped 
would happen has all come true plus more, right? Like I'm in a relationship with a new person, I would say a very brave person. <laughs> you know, like there's a lot of like there's a lot of potential. There's a lot of like possibility and beautiful beauty and I am mostly a very happy and content person and even though my life has stories of extreme, you know, sadness and grief and loss, I would say it that also it also has extreme happiness and beauty and appreciation and gratitude and you know, I I like who I am today. I like I like I like the art that I create today, right? I like the relationships that I have today. So, I, you know, everyone's life is has ups and downs and dramatic contrasts, I would hope, right? But I but it does feel like there is like everyone has the potential for tomorrow and another day and another, you know, and grace and it's available. Hope. I didn't do anything. I'm not particularly meritous or virtuous, right? I didn't do anything to deserve the life that I have, except that I had, I had was gifted um, some hope. Mm-hmm. Well, and you said something earlier about trying to salvage your life, and what happens here really is we can't sell we don't salvage that life we build an entirely new life it's the tower card like it looks terrible and terrifying when it's happening but when everything's gone and we you get to we get to rebuild ourselves in such a different way that we don't even know is possible to really know who we yeah. are and I mean, to it's really the, it's the belly of the whale right it's in the point in the story where the hero seems to die Mm-hmm. Right. And then they, you know, come back home with a new, you know, with new understandings, new learnings, new wisdom. It's the monomyth, you know, mm-hmm. it's the one true story. And, you know, not to say, not to be Shakespearean about it, but that does, <laughs> my life does seem to reflect that. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's wild. It's been a, you know, it's been a wild ride. And and the cool thing now is that having, well, like you said, like having the contrast in your life, I think adds to the appreciation of the moments of contentment, the moments of joy, the moments of, like you said, not having the sharp edges on the, on the grief anymore and relaxing into the being where we are now in life and just enjoying learning new things and, you know, whatever that looks like, knowing that it took all of those components to make up what's happening right now. So the, you know, without looking back on those times in our lives when we were not operating at a perfectly healthy capacity or whatever and just looking at it kind of with compassion now and with some you know obviously some objectivity but like wow I was really going through it you know I was just really suffering I was really suffering at that time 
yeah, to be I able mean, to give yourself that compassion and give yourself that yeah. level of understanding and, and love. Yeah. I mean, I will say that's, I can get there after four years of trauma therapy. Yeah. For right. Sure. Like I did, yeah, yeah. I could not see that. I could not see it before then. Right. Do you feel like you have released a lot of whatever guilt or coulda, shoulda, woulda, or I wish I would have, I wish I could have and stuff? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think it would be an interesting subject for us to talk about PTSD therapy, trauma therapy, and AA and how they work together and how they don't work together, how, mm-hmm. yeah. how, how they don't treat the symptoms of the other, right? Like... I definitely have had to have experience with both because one of them doesn't treat the other one Mm -hmm. and actually like can weaponize. Yeah. The steps against you. I believe that. I believe that. And just the, the timing of these things happening, the AA and the therapy, just like the time, the, the timing of it is interesting. And I've seen different people do it at different times in their recovery, different times sober. And it's a delicate balance. I mean, it's really, it really has to be, I think, a very intentional and kind, you know, it has to, it has to, it has to be, but it, well, but it can't, you know, it can't really be planned. It's just like when you, when you're inspired, when it's on your heart or when you're prompted to yeah. start forging ahead into the right. trauma or well, the, and, old, and really, the old wounds. I, mean, I wish I was the kind of person that was motivated by like curiosity by and joy. interest, yeah. right? Like, right. But it really was like, I'm not going to make it if, I, if something doesn't change. Mm -hmm. And I didn't necessarily know that it was trauma therapy that I needed. Like someone had to tell me. Mm. So I didn't go like, Oh, I'm getting curious about my inner wounds. And Mm. you know, my, I had someone tell me like the words that you're using speak to trauma. And I think you should consider finding a therapist. Who was it that said that to you? David Nielsen. Oh, wow. Good job, David. Well, I know when I talk to people using the language that we use when we talk about trauma therapy or healing or whatever, people nod. I think there is kind of just this intrinsic sense, this knowing of, and I feel like I can hear it. I can hear that what David heard in you in women that come, or men, anyone who comes and talks to me about it, or they hear me talking about it, or they, it's someone I've known a long time, and they say, I feel like I'm being driven by something against my will to make, to mm-hmm. behave this way, or to make these decisions, and I'm yeah. like, wow, it sounds like you might be ready to delve into this, yeah. but, because, right. you know, that must have been how we were talking or felt before. Yeah. I mean, I was walking around absolutely jangled all the time. mm I could not be in a relationship with a dude. I could not, like, the f- reactions that I was having to simple things were really dramatic. Mm-hmm. I, you know, felt, oh, it's time for us to get our washing machine fixed. Our dishwasher. Our dishwasher's broken. <laughs> yeah, knock, knock. Okay, all right. Thanks, Janet. I'll see you see in the you kitchen. See you in the kitchen. Yep, okay. In two minutes. Bye. Yep, bye.